Welcome to IOL Radio, the podcast for IOL Learning, a digital publication that covers the latest advancements in interventional oncology. This podcast episode is part of the SIO Corner, a collaboration between IOL Learning and the Society of Interventional Oncology. Our guest host today is Dr. Elena Violari, interventional radiologist and member of the SIO's Publications Committee. Dr. Violari has invited Dr. Yolanda Bryce, an interventional radiologist and director of the Interventional Radiology Training Program at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, to discuss percutaneous local-regional therapies for the treatment of benign and malignant breast tumors. Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening. Today, we're pleased to have Dr. Yolanda Bryce as our guest. Dr. Bryce is an interventional radiologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York, where she also serves as the director of the Interventional Radiology Training Program. Yolanda, welcome, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Um, Our main topic today will be to discuss percutaneous local regional therapies for the treatment of breast cancer. My first question to you, Yolanda, is what initially drew you into interventional oncology? And then more specifically, what made you be interested in the treatment of breast cancer? That's a very good question. And and my journey here has been um, not direct. I went into radiology, specifically diagnostic radiology, with the intention of doing interventional radiology. It's something that I had seen my last year of medical school, and it was the one thing I thought could engage me for the rest of my life. While I was in radiology, my radiology residency, I I was involved in in missionary work, especially in Jamaica, and the thought of not being able to practice medicine in a low-income country was a little disturbing to me. And at the same time, I had uh, an attending breast imager who was the most amazing doctor I had ever encountered. She was simply fabulous and she was a breast imager. And honestly, I I decided I wanted (laughs) to be like her. So I decided to do a breast imaging fellowship, which I did at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, MSKCC, where I am now. Mm -hmm. And after I had gotten that position for fellowship for breast imaging, I said to myself, what the heck am I doing? I want to be an interventional radiologist. So I decided to do still pursue that. And I matched at the world renowned Miami Cardiac and Vascular Institute, MCBI. So I did a breast imaging fellowship at MSK. And then I went on to do an interventional radiology residency or fellowship at that time. And when I finished, or when I was finishing, I should say, Elizabeth Morris, who was chief of breast imaging at Sloan, and who was one of my mentors and one of the most fabulous people that you'll ever meet, super brilliant, super um, supportive. Mm-hmm. And she wanted to bring me back to start the cryoblation program for breast cancer, which she had been trying to start, but she was getting a lot of pushback from different entities. And she thought because I was dual trained in both breast imaging and interventional radiology, I would be ideal. So she made a great case. And honestly, I it wasn't very hard for me to make the decision because she was fabulous 
and she continues to be, but she's no longer my chief here. And so mm -hmm. I joined um, Sloan to do um, to start the cryoblation program, and I was half half breast imaging and interventional radiology. Um, that was a big strain on myself, the the division. So I now do interventional radiology largely. I do do breast imaging once a week because the people are great and I want to keep up my skills and I like maintaining uh, my breast imaging skills in order. I think it makes me a better interventional radiologist to treat breast cancer. I also, because I was doing cryoblation of the breast, I was put into the breast medicine disease management team. We call it DMTs. It's a, um, so mine was specifically breast cancer. And through that, I not only um, treated primary breast cancer, but also metastatic breast cancer. So I treat patients, both the primary side and also the area of metastatic breast cancer with oligoprogression, oligometastasis or salvage, um, when there's need for salvage, when systemic therapies are exhausted mm -hmm. or too toxic. So that has been my journey. I'm also a vascular specialist, so that is part of also my um, my interest at at this cancer center. So that is my experience of how I got into specifically breast cancer. That's a wonderful story and very inspiring story. Uh, you have obviously a very unique skill set and very unique training. And um, uh, through your story, we understand one more time how important is mentorship, um, you know, throughout medical school and training. And uh, uh, that's an amazing story. I was hoping to talk to us, you already did, but a little bit more about your current state of your practice at MSK. Right. So I do. So at Sloan, at Sloan, we're very specific in what we do. Mm -hmm. People don't treat HCC and colon and neuroendocrine. Everybody's very much siloed that way that we can, we can be very deep within that specific area with regards to speaking, um, teaching, and uh, research, and so mm -hmm. forth, and clinical practice. So... At Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, I only do breast cancer from the cancer standpoint. I mean, there's things that everybody has to do, the bread butter stuff, biopsies, um, gastrostomies, biliary drainages. Mm -hmm. um, there's some things that every IR does on whichever patient. But when you're talking about the disease management specific to your practice, I, don't, I just do breast cancer and vascular vascular care. But with regards to breast cancer, um, that's all I treat. So whether it's local treatment of a primary breast cancer or metastatic breast cancer in the liver and the lung, mm -hmm. wherever it may be, that's my practice. I do, as I said before, I still do breast imaging once a week, which I do believe helps me with my overall care of the breast cancer patient. So in my practice, a lot of clinical breast I do also research in this space, um, and then I and I speak as well. Wonderful. Um, diving into our topic now, uh, which is um, to discuss percutaneous local regional therapies for the treatment of uh, breast cancer. Um, in an era where surgery is also very minimal invasive, um, for example, surgeons went from performing radical mastectomies to all the way down to doing a lumpectomy. 
when is breast cryoablation indicated for malignant breast tumors? When do we consider the patient an ideal candidate for cryoablation instead of surgery? So that that is a very good question. And, and the evolution of surgery is a reflection that smaller cancers are being discovered because of the practice of population-based screening. It used to be that cancers were so large that they'd even have to respect, as you said, the pectoralis muscle. Now the cancers are typically caught um, while screening. So meaning they're usually two centimeters or less. Mm-hmm. And, and, and therefore, yes, that is reflected in a smaller surgery. However, there's some patients that even though surgery is now much smaller than it was before, they're still not um, eligible for surgery for a myriad of reasons. First of all, I should state that a patient's eligibility for surgery is this, is determined by the breast surgeon. We would mm-hmm. like to determine that eligibility, but honestly, the breast surgeon is who, who says if a patient is eligible or not. And once that decision is made, it, it could be made for many reasons, frailty of the patient, age, comorbidities, usually it's some kind of cardiopulmonary disease, the patient is on anticoagulation, and that cannot be stopped. The patient has some kind of concomitant cancer, and they're receiving systemic treatment for that. And um, stopping that that treatment is not optimal in order for wound healing to occur after breast surgery. I've had patients refer to me, they had severe chronic liver disease um, that seemed to be not an indicate, not a, it seemed to be some kind of contraindication for surgery. So I honestly, in my practice, my, my practice is treating patients that are not surgical candidates. And also some patients that after speaking to the breast surgeon, refuse surgery, and it is well documented Mm -hmm. that they refuse surgery. And so in answer to your question, the eligibility is determined by the breast surgeon. And if they're not eligible, for one of the reasons I said, and I'm sure there are many authors, um, they're the ones that determine it the eligibility and refer or not refer to me. And then the patients that feel they're not eligible after consulting with a breast surgeon, mm-hmm. um, I have it documented that they have refused surgery and, and if feasible, and if it's indicated, um, I do it. I do the, the procedure. I should say that I treat patients differently let's say a patient is not a surgical candidate. So therefore I am kind of their one hope. For instance, Mm -hmm. I have this, I have a patient that I saw today in clinic. She has a very large cancer. It's 5.4 centimeters. And Mm -hmm. she has been seen by a breast surgeon. She is not a uh, candidate because of frailty for breast surgery. She's not a candidate for chemotherapy again, because they think that she will not be able to tolerate it. They are thinking it is her two positive, so they're thinking maybe they'll put in some immunotherapy, but she doesn't have many options. And so they have referred her to me to see if I could do the surgery. Now, the tumor is 5.4 centimeters within a very small breast. Mm-hmm. So with her, I'm treating her as a palliative intent. It will be my goal to try to treat all the tumor, but it's going to be difficult, but I will do my best to treat all of it. 
but because of the size and because of the small breast, I may not be able to treat all of it. But I treat that case in a patient who is not a surgical candidate, different from a patient who is a surgical candidate and is refusing surgery. In a patient who is a surgical candidate, I would never do that. I would never do a cryoablation on that patient mm -hmm. if her tumor was 5.4 centimeters or multicentric. Uh, or, or so forth. Those patients, I have a very candid conversation with them and describe to them the very bad idea that it would be to do a cryoablation on a patient, on a, something that has a very high risk of recurrence because of the size mm -hmm. and so forth. So I treat different populations um, depending on their eligibility for surgery and their willingness for surgery. That's a great answer. Um, because you give us an idea of the size criteria, patient's eligibility for surgery. Um, so uh, as I understand, the size of the mass, the location, and the stage affect your decision in offering this treatment, correct? Yes, and I, that's correct. So for patients that are not surgical candidates, I, I just take it as a case-by-case -case basis, and I believe I can create an ice ball big enough to at least debulk most, like 95% of the tumor mm -hmm. uh, without injuring too much the skin, I will take that on. Um, in a patient who is a surgical candidate, I try to stick with the published data. If we look at the ACASOG um, Z1072 trial data and the interim results from from ice cure and the different results that are, are around, we we know that when tumors are on this, like 50, mil, 50 millimeters or less, there's not a lot of DCIS, they're HER2 positive, the patient is above 50, we can more confidently treat those patients with curative intent. You mentioned the HER2, but how does the, you know, in addition to HER2, the hormone status as well of breast cancer affect the decision-making for offering cryo? To me, the most important um, criteria for me, whether I accept or not is size, mm -hmm. um, and location. If it's, again, if it's, if I'm treating for curative intent, which honestly I try to, I try to treat with curative intent for patients, but I know if a patient is again, a surgical candidate, my curative intent is in, is focused on a very narrow population. And, and that is driven to me by size. If a tumor is about two centimeters or less, that is usually my cutoff point to treat somebody who is a surgical candidate. Two centimeters, I know that I can, in my practice, I know that I can get great results with that. I don't so much care about whether it's hormonally positive or her to, to her to new or so forth, with the exception that I then want the medical oncologist to be involved in order to provide systemic um, therapy, whether it's um, hormonal therapy, her to new um, blockade and so forth. So that is how I think about it. I know that trials are focused on hormonally positive disease, but in my practice, that has not been an issue. I have treated triple negative breast cancer in patients. And I like to emphasize this after they have consulted with a breast surgeon, if they are still refusing mm -hmm. surgery and it's documented by the breast surgeon, I document it. I have treated triple negative breast cancer um, up to two centimeters 
thankfully with good outcome. And I find size to be the biggest proponent that I've seen regarding outcome. And what about histopathology? Does that affect the decision-making for cryo, for example, patients? I think you briefly mentioned, touched on earlier, um, invasive doctor carcinoma versus doctor carcinoma in situs versus low blood carcinoma. Does that affect your decision? Yeah. So doctor carcinoma in situ, over and over, the publications have shown that when a lot of DCIS is involved, that the results are poor are poorer, I should say. There is one trial that is being conducted now that they're trying to test cryoblation in DCIS, and it's a very focal DCIS that they're conducting the trial in. Um, I do not routinely treat DCIS. I do do it, again, and if a patient is not a surgical candidate and they understand the limitations because DCIS is tricky. You can't see it all with imaging. You can only see what you see, <laughs> uh, which is, is it calcifications on, on a mammogram or non-mass enhancement on MRI? Then you may be able to see those areas of, of, but there's also areas that skip, that skip. And so I, I don't routinely treat DCIS for those reasons. In fact, I had another consultation for clinic today <laughs> with a lady <laughs> with multicentric DCIS, a surgical candidate, and I gave her the reasons why. There's nothing published that supports doing cryoblation in that population. And so I, I will not be doing her procedure. What are some of the absolute contraindications for breast cryoblation? You just mentioned multicentric DCIS. I think in a patient who is a surgical candidate, what should drive you to not do the procedure is if you do not believe that you will be able to treat the person with curative intent. Everybody does things a little differently. I know I have done pretty sizable tumors and gotten a great result. Not everybody is that good at doing it or has that much experience in doing the procedure. I use multiple probes to do the procedure. I So I know that I not everybody's comfortable with using multiple probes. I use my thought and what I, I use and what I teach when I speak on this topic is that every centimeter of tumor deserves a probe or repositioning of the probe. So mm -hmm. if I know that I can treat I, I know confidently, very confidently in my practice, I can do two centimeters of tumor very effectively. And so I have to just be very honest with myself and know what I'm going to be able to offer this patient who is a surgical candidate who I want to treat with curative intent. In another patient who is not a surgical candidate, I push the limits on those patients. So the tumor by, might be very close to the skin, even then, as long as the tumor is not attached to the skin, I'm able to create a margin. Mm -hmm. But you have to look at everything as a case by case basis. Am I able to generate an ice ball large enough to engulf the tumor without destroying the patient's skin? So you have to assess on a case by case basis if something is, is good. So some patients, especially these patients that cannot that will not be going to surgery and you're kind of like their last hope 
there are situations where I know the, the tumor is involving the skin, but I think I can treat at least most of the tumor and then send the patient to, with, to radiation to try to clean up the rest. So the determination of somebody's eligible for your procedure is really based case by case. What kind of, um, you know, before you do the procedure, what workup do you do imaging-wise, labs-wise, prior to the intervention? Okay, so imaging, I want to make sure that I, I'm seeing the extent of the tumor. So I look at what is available to me, which is usually a mammogram and ultrasound. And that's typically enough. Sometimes, let's say the mammogram gives me a centimeter of four because I can see the dense cancer in a fatty breast and I know the tumor measures four and an ultrasound, it's it's only half of that size. And I go with the modality that is showing me the largest size of the tumor. And if there's a discrepancy, let's say on mammogram, I'm seeing a certain side, like the example I'm giving um, versus ultrasound, then I try to put markers that can be seen under ultrasound at the extent of the tumors. And I do that under mammogram. I ask one of my colleagues in breast imaging to do it for me. Usually they work so well with me and I really appreciate them so much, <laughs> but they, they, they will help me in that they put markers at the extent of the tumor so that I can see it. Cause I typically do the procedure under ultrasound guidance. Mm -hmm. And if the patient, if there's any question like there's the breasts are very dense. I like to have additional imaging such as an MRI or contrast enhanced mammogram. So those are the imaging, at least at the very least mammogram and ultrasound to make the determination. And then in some specific cases such as very dense breasts or the, the lesion is vague, I'm just not sure, I may add MRI or contrast enhanced mammogram. So in IR routinely, everybody gets labs. I don't think they're necessary because it's a patient, it's a procedure that is very low risk, mm -hmm. but they do routinely draw labs and they'll check for the usual, the BMP, uh, CBC and INR. And, and I don't do much with those because for me, I don't stop anticoagulation. I don't stop antiplatelets for the safety of the patient, if the INR is crazy high, I would, you know, they need to address that. But I treat them in their therapeutic range, which is usually 2.5 to 3.5. I treat them, I do cryoblation in that range. I think for the IR service at my institution, they want platelets at least 20,000 for this, for any low risk procedure. So I guess we all adhere to, to that. But, um, and so, if labs are drawn and labs are available, those are the guidelines I use. During the procedure, um, do you use sedation or local anesthesia? So I, I do want to emphasize that the procedure can be done under local anesthesia only. Sedation is not needed. However, my population, because mm -hmm. I, or maybe because I feel sorry for them, the table is very uncomfortable. It's very hard. Yeah. So I do give them a little something just okay. to keep them a little happy, but they're awake. Do you perform ablation under ultrasound guidance or do you, I've seen some um, papers out there mentioning also MRI guidance. Yes. So I do routinely under ultrasound. There have been some occasions that I have done it under MRI 
very rarely um also we've we've lost i think they changed the device for mri ablation so i no longer do it at all but mm -hmm. i have done it it's a little cumbersome i can tell you that a way to do it that keeps the probins in place just a little trick for those who do who want to do it under mri is to start the ablation and that sticks the probe in its spot before you release oh. the compression on the breast just a little tip that mm -hmm. that works well but i do it mostly under ultrasound do you utilize any skin protective methods um you mentioned earlier having a patient with a large tumor five centimeters mm -hmm. In those patients, do you use hydrodissection to prevent cutaneous yeah. yeah. burns or any muscle protective techniques as well? So I do hydrodissection on probably all of them. I don't know if there's been a single case where I have not used hydrodissection and it's very simple. You just use a very a small gauge needle, like a 21 or 22 gauge needle attached to an, um, a tubing. And I just inject normal saline the entire procedure it is not warm normal saline just room temperature regular normal saline i don't want to affect the ice ball and i inject and i do that throughout the the procedure if the tumor is not i think the literature a lot of the times say that you should um do like they should be like five millimeters from the skin that's not been my experience as long as the tumor is not attached to the skin you can typically get a good margin with a lot of hydrodissection. That's going to result, if you use a lot of hydrodissection, especially if the tumor is very large, that is going to result in a very large breast and very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So you have to warn the patient about that. Mm -hmm. um, but it is possible. I do use also a heat pack in a sterile sleeve yeah. to, as an added protection but honestly I do believe that if that ice ball touches the skin I don't think that heat pack is going to do much so that hydrodissection is key um, I do, oh and the pectoralis muscle I don't worry about it at all can you briefly describe us your technique you know and needle placement and uh, um, when do you use more than one probes and I think you already answered on that question that every one centimeter deserves a probe. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, so I just dissect the tumor. So I repeat the ultrasound before I do the ablation. So I I don't rely on outside imaging. I look at it myself. I plan while I'm there right before the procedure. I measure it and I decide where I need to spread out my probes. And yes, the rule of thumb to me is every centimeter of tumor, I try to put a probe. And so I line up the probes to to segment the lesion. Does your treatment cycle of cryoblation depend on the size of the lesion or the location? So I try to aim, I aim for, I try to aim for 10 minutes freeze, eight minutes passive thought, another 10 minute freeze, and then active thought to just remove the cryoblation probes. I don't always get there. If the, if the tumor is very close to the skin and I'm having a lot of trouble maintaining that, that separation of the ice ball from the skin, I am not able necessarily to make that full time. 
sometimes a trick is to drop the the intensity of it. I start out at a hundred. If I'm having a lot of trouble, then I switch out to I lower it to like an eighty-five percent intensity. I don't know if intensity is the correct word, but the maximum energy I use 85 mm -hmm. and that's supposed to maintain the size of the ice ball without making it any larger is what I've been told. And so I may try that. So I try to reach 10 minutes, I, I should say, but, and eight minutes thaw and 10 minutes repeat freeze. But sometimes I do not get there because of the proximity of the ice ball to the skin. Yeah. And I guess that leads me to the next question. What makes a case technically challenging? Mm -hmm. Large tumors close to skin. Yeah. <laughs> and what's the best predictor of uh, of technical success? Size. Size of the tumor. My experience is mainly with cryoblation for, for renal tumors, where you can see the ice ball very well under CT guidance. With ultrasound guidance, are you able to have a imaging-wise predictor of technical success? The best predictor under ultrasound is, again, when you're doing the, the procedure, you're only seeing, anyone who has done it under ultrasound, you know that you are only seeing the artifact of the ice ball. So I wish somebody would come up with some kind of great AI ultrasound <laughs> <laughs> um configuration to help better predict yeah I rely on that I know that I put the probe in the right place I know that mm -hmm. where I put the probe I I measure the ice ball that's formed again I'm measuring just the artifact mm -hmm. and and that it is at least one centimeter larger on each side than the tumor so if the tumor let's say is two centimeters, I know I need a four centimeter ice ball or so forth. I think that has been my best judgment of how this turns out. You never know for sure until you get that follow-up imaging. Yeah. So um, for my, my follow-up imaging, my technique is I do three months after the procedure because I think the inflammation has died down enough by then, I do the imaging. I do, I like to do some kind of contrast study. I tend to use contrast enhanced mammography at my institution, just because it's better tolerated by some of these patients that are older. And also um, a lot of them have pacemakers. So I, I tend to use contrast enhanced mammogram with ultrasound at the three month mark. If somebody has no contraindications, then I, I do use mammogram ultrasound and MRI, contrast-enhanced MRI, to follow them up. And then I look at those imagings at three months and I decide how else to follow the patient. Let's say the tumor was one centimeter and the ablation zone around the tumor is quite very good. It's very good. It's like surrounding, it's big. I'm very confident that this patient will do fine, that I got the tumor, then I'll see her at a year follow-up. If I'm not sure, then I I do it in six months. And I'll, um, ideally, if I'm using, if it, if I'm using a follow-up technique in a patient that is a surgical candidate, um, I like to do mammogram and ultrasound 
yearly and MRI yearly, but they offset each other by six months so that every six months they're getting some kind of imaging of the breast. What are some of potential procedural risks when you discuss this procedure with the patients or complications of cryoablation? The biggest thing is that of skin injury. And it's not something that I shy away from. I think I've been doing this long enough. And, and unfortunately, because of the, the kind of patients I treat, I have injured a lot of skin. So I actually put it into the description of the procedure. And I tell the patient, if the skin is burnt during the procedure, I will send you home with, with silvidine cream and some pain medication to go home with. And I also, in my back pocket, I know that if it's a very major burn, which hasn't happened to me yet, um, I will consult, consult plastic surgery. So the biggest complication is that of skin injury. Other things that I've noticed is especially if the ice ball is close to the nipple, and I should say I try never to direct my my probe towards the nipple, but if the ice ball has been close to the nipple, sometimes the patient complain of a shooting pain or sensitivity of their nipple after the procedures. Depending on the location of the tumor, you might want to warn them. The one thing that really you should emphasize with the patient, and that has been in my experience, and just the other day I gave a talk and somebody told asked me, how do I deal with the mental agony that they're able to palpate something after? And the answer is that you have to prepare them before. So the area of treatment, especially if you've had to generate a big ice ball, it's going to be palpable to the patient for a very, very long time. Even up to a year, patients say that in the area of treatment, they're able to feel the treatment there. And I try to tell them, so beforehand, before the procedure, as part of just the initial consultation, and honestly, I repeated the day of the procedure because I wanted fresh in everybody's mind, the patient and the family. I tell them that after the procedure, it could last up to a year or more. You're going to feel something in the breast in the area that was treated. It is not the tumor. It's not the tumor growing. It is the ball of inflammation that is surrounding the dead tissue that is eating up the dead tissue and replacing it with normal tissue, but it will take a long time to go away. It's one thing that I do stress because it, it I guess it can cause quite a bit of mental yeah. anguish if you don't prepare the patient beforehand. That's a great way to approach, uh, approach that by preparing them. Mm -hmm. Can you update us on the current evidence for cryoablation for breast cancer, which studies are you quoting when you offering this procedure? Well, there's been one very significant landmark trial, and that was it. That's the ACASOG Z1072 trial. Um, Rache Simmons was the um, first author of that paper and principal investigator. She's at Cornell. And so that paper showed that tumors one centimeter or less, you, when treated, you had a 100% success rate, and that's because they used only one probe. 
There was other studies, um, namely one by Lit Peter Littrop in 2009 that showed that larger tumors up to 5.8 centimeters can be treated successfully with multiple probes. Um, those are kind of older studies. There, is, there are registries. Um, significantly though, there are two new studies that are currently underway. One is called FROST and one is called ICECURE-3. ICECURE-3 just recently published their interim results that they showed in patients and their population, again, emphasized their surgical patients. So their patients or surgically eligible patients, I should say, they're mm -hmm. with tumors that are hormonally positive, 50 millimeters or less, her two negative, um, and they're 50 years or older, I believe. So it's a very specific population and all of these patients will be going on to adjuvant radiation and hormonal therapy. And so there, the interim results for the IceCure 3 trial has shown that there is a 2% recurrence rate, which is very acceptable and not bad correct, um, compared to surgical recurrence rates, which is, which is in that range. Um, so, so those are promising. We'll have to wait for the full results to, to mature. And so uh, those are the two trials that will be important in our time. Like I said, those are very promising. Um, now, what are your thoughts on combining breast cryoablation and immune checkpoint inhibitor immunotherapy for treatment of uh, advanced breast cancer? So it's a very interesting topic. And it's I was involved with a pilot study that we had at my institution regarding um, perioperative breast cancer, combining it with immune, well, specifically, it was a double immunotherapy intervention. And it's a very interesting concept. The thing with breast cancer, and this is different from other cancers, is that breast cancer tends to be silent compared to other cancers, meaning that the body doesn't pick up that there's cancer in the body when breast cancer is present. So the, the utility of cryoblation is that it provides proteins that are not denatured. And that's different than if you're doing thermal ablation that of, with using heat rather than cold. So it, it creates proteins to be released that can serve as antigens because they're not denatured and they can serve as information to the immune system. And so when that happens, if you combine that with an immune inhibitor, because again, not because there's a lot of antigens suddenly in the body is there going to be an immune response. So the there are checks and balances within the immune system. And so PDL1, PD1 is one interaction that causes there to be kind of like breaks on the immune system. So when you combine, once there's antigens in the system to kind of set the say the stage for immune response and you combine that with an inhibitor of some kind of in some kind of pathway to break up the interaction that is inhibiting the immune response when that is combined there's a promise that there could be an immune response so in our pilot study where we treated patients with cryoblation and 
uh, ipianivo, we saw that there are certain suppressor cells. They're called PDL1 high T cells. Mm -hmm. There are suppressor cells. When we combined the therapy, those cells were much lower in the system, and that resulted in a bigger ratio of effector T cells to regulatory T cells. So that prompts the immune system, hopefully towards a response. And this is kind of just a pilot study. So it, there hasn't been any long-term study. Um, I'm hoping to study the same thing in metastatic triple negative yeah. breast cancer, the same idea using a pdl one inhibitor with cryoblation. That's wonderful. So are you currently involved in any research trials? No, that so that pilot study is done and that's being published. Um, and so the next step is for the for this other project that I had mentioned with metastatic uh, breast cancer. And that one has just started the IRB process, so it's currently not active. So we'll see where that goes. All right. So I just wanted to get your final thoughts about the future of treating breast cancer with local regional therapies with or without combination of immunotherapy. So I think it will be very interesting to see the FROST and the iSecure data. I think there will be a lot of registries. There is an industry that has been trying to do a randomized control study. That'll be very difficult, but I think at least there are going to be some industry-based registries mm -hmm. and hopefully that will generate enough data to define the population that this procedure is useful in as well as giving us enough data to be included in the nccn guidelines that is going to be very difficult because breast surgery has so much data and for so long they have so many patients it'll be hard but hopefully mm -hmm. with enough registries and and the results of some of these newer trials, we will get closer. And at least if we're not in the NCCN guidelines, at least there will be enough information for a scientific basis to perform the procedure more confidently. Mm -hmm. And it's important because patients are hearing about the procedure and are asking it for it themselves. So it's no longer something that is just being offered to them. Sometimes they're actively pursuing trying to find someone who is able to do this for them. And mm -hmm. hopefully with enough data, with enough trials, um, I need to publish my data. It will be retrospective, but hopefully with enough registries and and everybody providing the procedure with good technique. And I do emphasize that. And it, mm -hmm. it, it pains me because a lot of the trials have been done with poor technique. And that's why the results have not been so promising. The same ACOSOG Z1072 trial had such poor technique. And so hopefully the more people get involved, have good technique, are able to contribute to good registries, we'll have enough data to scientifically push the procedure forward. I agree with you. And I'm looking forward to see those studies and the results and uh, the data. And uh, I agree with you that technique is probably the most important in getting those good results. 
So it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. And thank you so much for spending your time with us and for sharing your knowledge and expertise in this topic. This was very informative. I've learned a ton. And uh, I'm so thankful for, for accepting our invitation to come and speak with us. Well, this was wonderful. And I appreciate the opportunity. And I'm excited that people are finding this subject of interest. And it's only a good thing. It's only a good thing. And the more radiologists are involved, it's, it's a very, very good thing. So thank you so much for having me. That wraps up another episode of IOL Radio. To listen to more conversations on topics of interest to interventional oncologists, please visit the podcast page at iolearning.com.